In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Um, this is Steve Turk, and today I'm joined with the star of Doctor Who, The Hobbit, The Owners. Welcome to the show, Sylvester McCoy. How are you doing today, Mr. McCoy? I'm doing very well, really, considering the strain of um, the uh, coronavirus. Doing really well. Yeah, it's been an interesting um, year for, uh, I think, everybody worldwide and um, and so on. I've found it, it's, it's one of those things... Uh, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. I think this is one of those tests for everybody. Indeed, yes, yes. Um, uh, it, it's rather strange, though, because um, I've never walked with death so much before. I am getting old, but it's like um, this year, one's very aware that there's a, there's a shadow of a very dark, tall person in a cloak with a scythe nearby. Yes, um, I, I know I've been going through some various health issues myself this year, so I know exactly what you mean about thinking about the um, the Grim Reaper is always around that corner. <laughs> yep, sure is. But I mean, he seems to be around even more at the moment. Mother Nature is taking her rightful revenge on the mismanagement that we have made of her, of her world. That is true. And um, one of the things I'm hoping that we can do through this podcast and for this interview is give some people some relief from the daily news of looking at all this stuff, you know, cause every time we, you turn on anything, it's over and over the same stuff. And, um, for at least a little while, they'll have a respite from that. Um, as, as movies do and television shows do, as you know, for your life watching different things, I'm sure you've had some favorite uh, movies growing up or maybe now, that helped you oh, get through yes, times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, um, my, my, I, I was born during the war, and uh, there was no television. But we had two cinemas, two uh, cinemas in Danoon, the um, the Playhouse and the, uh, oh, I've forgotten the other one's name. It was a rather exotic name. Anyway, my mother, who was a war widow, uh, used to, Every night she would go out and go to the cinema. And they had the cinemas on to they'd show a film for two days, two days, two nights, and then change it. And so she'd go for one night to one cinema and then the other night to the other one. And so I kind of grew up uh, watching films even when I was a little baby. And so years later, when I became an actor um, by accident at the age of 27, I didn't realize that I had been carrying a baggage of silent movie skills that I'd obviously 
ingested as a little boy and a little baby in my mother's arms. Because I, and in fact, I ended up playing Buster Keaton, Stan Laurel, um, Ben Turpin, I don't know if you remember him, he had cross eyes and a moustache. And I seem to have all these silent movie skills. And I think it came from that. Uh, so, so speaking of that, with Buster Keaton and Stan Laurel and stuff, and what, what were one of your fa- can you remember any film in particular that was like one of your favorites with them? Oh, The General, definitely one of the great. I mean, it's now considered one of the great uh, films. Not only his performance, but as the director of it. And it's, I mean, he he was a genius, an unsung genius as a director. If he even if he did never appeared in front of the screen, he would been you know. He's one of the great American directors. He, he moved cinema on dramatically. He was very clever with machines and machinery, as you see in the films. That he uses um, uh, that skill beautifully and for great comedy effect. But he also used it for great... Uh, he invented shots, things that had never been achieved before. He had a general, brilliant. But a lot of his films, you know, the one... I, I mean, I played him, I blessed, I played him on stage and I did that stunt where, where I, um, I was, behind me was a big, you know, the front of a house and the, the door and then up there the window and the whole thing comes down like that and covered him up on the film. Mm-hmm. I did that on the stage. And it had to be really heavy because the, because when it came down, the air would get underneath it and it would wobble. So they actually they had to weigh this thing it wasn't like a you know a stage prop. It was almost like a, a bloody wall, and I did it. I was so proud. <laughs> I don't know what did the audience. I, I wonder if the audience when they were seeing that was 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 like scared or laughing or both at the same time because it's like oh no, it's falling, <laughs> especially if they're not yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah, with the actual scene from the the film. Yeah, and um, yeah. Um, so, that, so I kind of grew up with films. Um, we, we we had an hour when we were little on Saturdays. We'd have um, Saturday morning cinema, in, and we'd go along. And just after the war, I used to get jam jars. I suppose you call them jelly jars in America. We call them jam jars. Mm-hmm. And you collect those, and they were worth about half a penny, half a penny. And if you got two of those, you could take them along to the box office. And rather than pay money, you gave them these jam jars and they let give you a ticket to go and see the film. And there would be Gene Autry and cowboy films. But another film that comes to mind when I was young was a, my first horror film, Ooh. The Beast with Five Fingers, it was called. And it was all about someone's hand who had been, uh, who was a great concert pianist. And he, uh, it ended up, this hand, um, left hand I think it was, um, it kind of, came around and, and strangled people. <laughs> and I used to kind of battle. When I watched it, I was so scared. I was so scared when I was watching it. I had a raincoat on. I come from the west of Scotland. And those of you in Canada know um, it's a wet part of the world. It's a bit like the west of Canada. Anyway, I watched the whole film through a buttonhole. That's how I watched the film. The Beast with Five Fingers. <laughs> Oh, that, that, I know there's a lot of our listeners that love that movie, you know, and uh, so I'm glad you brought that up as um, because most of us, when we got to see it, it was on TV or later on on DVD. And it was, it's interesting yeah. to hear somebody's firsthand experience seeing it on the screen, the way it's meant to be seen. Yes, it was, um, it never stayed with me. 
I, I, love, I was terrified and, and, lo- and, never, and unforgettable. And uh, what's his name who played in it? Uh, the German actor. Uh, oh, Tom Heidi. Um, uh, can you remember? You got it named? I'm very bad at names. <sighs> who played the part? He also did M. Fritz Lang's M in Germany. Um, he was in, oh, lots of great films. The, uh, uh, oh, God, anyway, I can't remember his name. Someone, someone out there will know who it was. Oh, I know exactly those guys that will know, and they're, and they're, they'll email me later on, like, Steve, it was it was this. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, I did the, um, the stage version of um, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, and I played his character in that. Oh, Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie, that was it. The wonderful, wonderful, glorious Peter Laurie. Yeah, he was in The Beast with Five Fingers, but also he was in... Um, uh, Asking and all that. So when I did the stage version, I did, um, I played him. Oh, I played him like that. Yes. Oh, good fun. <laughs> Arsenic and Old Lace is one of my favorite movies of, of all time. You know, watching that one with Cary yeah. Grant and Peter Laurie. I mean, it's just, the only, the only thing I wish you had had was Boris Karloff in the role that he did on stage in the movie because it would have been so great seeing him play that role. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. Although, yeah, because I, I did the stage version as well. So that was first, and then they made the film. Stage version was great fun. I can, I can imagine. I've never seen it on stage, but I've been always wanting to see it on stage. It's one of those I keep looking yeah, for. It. It's got another added, I mean, the film is brilliant, but the stage gives it another added uh, kind of, you know, you, you smell it, you breathe it, it's there, you're in it. You know, it's like, oh. And, and that's why, as listeners in our past have known, but my two older children are into acting or theater, and um, with my daughter having a theater degree, and there's so many different plays and musicals that we've that they saw when they were younger, growing up that I've seen, and it's it. What I love about theater, live theater, is each end of each performance is tailored to that audience for that night. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. It's um. Theatre is not just about watching us work. It's in a sense, the audience are part of the experience. It's how they react to it. If you're doing a comedy, some nights they will laugh, you know, and other nights they might not laugh so much. It doesn't mean to say they don't enjoy it. It's just a different feel. But it's wonderful when you do a drama, straight drama, and you can feel uh, the silence and people, you can feel people, the audience is an emotion. If you're doing it really correctly in an emotional scene, it's quite magical, really. That, those moments where um, you can hear, I've had people weep. Um, well, that was critics when I came on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, you know, really, you know, people, you can hear them, and it's just such glorious feeling, really. So I wish your daughter well and your son. Your daughter's got, unless your daughter's. Backstage, isn't it? Production. Yes. Whereas your son wants to go on, on the stage. So I won't say don't put your daughter. I will say don't put your daughter on the stage, Mr. Wellington. Mr. Turek. Mr. Turek. Is that right? Yeah, it's Turek. You can just call me Steve. Yeah. But no, the, the famous song is Don't Put Your Daughter on the Stage, Mr. Mrs. Wellington. So users, don't put your daughter on the stage. Well, I guess like. She's not technically on the, well, she is on the stage setting up everything and getting all the, the um, effects ready. Yeah. 
That's what I mean. You're wired. She's not technically on the front, but backstage is much safer and but equally stressful <laughs> and also wonderful fun. Oh yeah, and that, Great and, and that's one of the things with with knowing her. When I watch movies, when I watch TV shows, when I watch, like we said, theater, um, I appreciate everybody that's involved because sometimes everybody just focuses and says, oh, the actor made this movie. It's like, no, there was a whole team. Sometimes it's a small team. Sometimes it's a rather large team. And of all of them pulling, doing their roles, if everybody does their job well or great, then you have a almost always you'll have something that is memorable. Sometimes you don't, but I mean, exactly. you almost always do. Yes. I mean, that's very true. I mean, uh, it, it is a teamwork. It really is. I mean, especially film. I mean, the actor in the sense, it's only a piece of the jigsaw on the film. This film is made up of the, you know, the, the, um, the cameraman, the director, the, the designers, all that stuff. Stage is slightly different because, um, I worked with one of the great directors of the uh, theatre directors of the 20th century. Her name was Joan Littlewood. Um, in filmic terms, she only ever made one film. It's called Sparrows Can't Sing, which is a delightful film if anyone wants to find it and look at it. But she was a revolutionary theatre director. And she used to say to us when we were on the stage, because you imagine you're in this room, it's dark all the lights are on you, you're actually visually taller than you are in real life because of the, um, you know, the perspective of the whole thing. And she said, you're God. Once you're on that stage, you're God, she used to say, because everyone's focused on you. Everything's focused on you. And also, as an actor, you are in charge. As soon as you go to that stage, you, in a sense, are in charge. Whereas in film, the director's in charge. The editor's in charge. So for actors, acting on stage is, in a sense, a much more rewarding um, experience. A much more because you, you're really in control once you're out there. Once you've done all the work and all the rehearsals. But I, lo- I do love doing film. I'm, I'm, I've done. Le- I've only. I did two years ago. The last play I did. Because um, it is. It is the hardest work for an actor. Theatre work. It really is wonderfully encompassing, but also, you know, you work the hardest, whereas film is much, much more. I mean, uh, theater is like painting with a broad brush. You know, that was big. It's got to be out there. It's got to hit the back wall. It's got to be seen, you know, from 2000 theater, seat theater. Whereas film is like painting with one of those Japanese brushes. You know, it's intimate, it's tiny, and sometimes it's just little bits. But in a way, it's also incredibly internal. And when you feel it right, it's almost orgasmic when you feel the, um, the, uh, the emotion. Yeah. So I love it. I love them all. I also love audio, as we're doing. I, I mean, that, that's the beauty of it, as you can tell, you know, when every one of your performances that I've seen or heard, um, you, the love for what you're doing is always there. And I think you can tell that with any actor's performance, if what, what, if, if, if like some people say, Oh, they did it for a paycheck. You can tell sometimes because they just didn't really care. Maybe they didn't think they thought the materials below them or whatever. I don't know. Maybe they're having a bad day. Um, it, we're all yeah. human. But the thing is, is usually everything I've seen that you've done, 
um, you've brought your A game and it's, it, you know, always makes everything better. You improve what is being out there. And I think when you have other actors that you've worked with in the past and they're bringing their A game, that everybody's raising their levels. And especially if you get a, um, as you said, with movies and TV, a good director writing, if everything is moving, like we, I said, on a good part, on a good pace, it's amazing what you yeah. can produce. I agree. It's very true. Thank you very much for saying that. But, um, yeah, um, it's, it's very true. Now, early on, when you started out, you were actually in an experimental theater group where you were a stuntman type person, type character. Yeah. Is it true you used to put ferrets down your pants? Yes, yes, it is. Um, it was um, when we were doing it, uh, the director, who was another genius, comic genius, Ken Campbell, he, um, he, he used to keep ferrets. He, he, they were his pets. He liked ferrets. And he'd heard once about a, a pub, someone in a pub in Stoke-on-Trent in England who'd been bet 10 shillings which is old-fashioned money, 10 shillings to, um, he couldn't keep a ferret down his trousers, and he took the bet, and he lost the bet. And we were doing a stunt show, so I was doing things like, I'd be, have a, a brick broken on my chest with a sledgehammer, um, I'd be um, uh, chained in handcuffs and put in a mail bag, and I'd have to escape, I'd lie on a bed of nails, uh, and have someone sit on me, uh, I'd blow fire, um, I'd uh, mentally combust cotton wool. I would set light to my head, and I would explode a bomb in my chest. And so we wanted to create our own stunts that no one else had ever done. Because of that story I told you about the barman in Stoke-on-Trent, Ken came up with the idea that we would actually try and break the world record for having a ferret down his trousers. Now we made this up, but we had the Guinness Book of Records which was, you know, a stage prop, and in it, we pretended this was a record, and I was trying to break my own record of having a ferret down my trousers, which I never broke. It was part of the comedy. <laughs> and the whole build-up of the, 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 the kind of that particular act was all about me being, um, having to, you know, drop my big baggy trousers and have people come up, especially young ladies from the audience, to inspect me to make sure that I had no protection or any stiffening or anything. Terrible gags like that, really. And then I'd put my trousers up and tie around the top of my knee uh, a, a string so the ferret wouldn't escape. And then they'd stick the ferret down and I'd try and break the world record, but I would never do it because it would, um, and, you know, and it was just the whole act was the comedy visual part of it, really. What was funny was we did it once in Liverpool and there was a newspaper that, I think it's called the Sunday People. I think it's still around. They followed us around. And also BBC were following us around with a documentary called Arena. It's out there somewhere, and, and you can watch it if you want. And you can see some of the stuff that we did. But anyway, in the Arena, um, I mean, the, the people, it, we were getting paid by the Liverpool Arts Council that we're getting paid to do this show. And so... The headline when the paper reported it was, this might be fun, but is it art? Because, you know, it was rough, ready stuff. But, um, and so we, we were very uh, upset about this. We thought it was an attack. But what happened was, 
It exposed the fact of the ferrets down the trousers. And so people all over Britain suddenly started sticking ferrets down their trousers. They took 25 ferrets down their trousers. And I, the thing is, I never really did it properly. It was a, there was a pocket in there. I was as safe as anything. I mean, since that moment, I've had two sons. So, you know, that proves that there was no danger. But people all over... And so that, that was quite fun, really. So that was the stunt show, yeah. It was great. It was mad. It was insane. It was glorious. It was... Um, we were called the Ken Camel Roadshow. And we got invited to Israel. Israel then, and the way back in those days, had um, a festival. It's a festival in the summer, and every week they had two guests. It was, and it was, it was a music festival really. So they'd have an orchestra and maybe a folk singer, or they'd have a rock band, or you know, um, an opera, an opera singer, and such. And the week we were called was actually this is in cinematic history. Was we were, the Ken Campbell Roadshow? were uh, doubled up with Theodorakis. Now, you may remember um, Never on a Sunday, the great uh, Zorba the Greek. Well, Theodorakis wrote the music for that. He was a great Greek composer, and he was actually uh, exiled from Greece at the time because um, the uh, it was been run by a military dictatorship, something that may happen to your neighbours next door if things go wrong. Anyway, uh, the, the he... He was musician. Well, we weren't musicians. I mean, we did a bit of music, but we weren't musicians. And we were bewildered by why we got invited then. And it turned out that they'd made a mistake. They meant to invite the Glen Campbell Roadshow. And they got the Ken Campbell Roadshow. <laughs> That's totally so different they were expecting, <laughs> For the time I get to Phoenix, you'll be waiting, or whatever songs he sang. And I was banging an ear like my nose and exploding a bomb in my chest. <laughs> which is, you know, in Israel. But that was in the days of innocence. I was going to say, I can imagine if you went thinking Glenn Campbell and you guys came out, that that would definitely be a, a totally different experience <laughs> for the audience. I blew their minds in, in Israel. They didn't, they didn't know what they... I mean, they didn't have television in those days. And uh, they were way back in the 1940s. I mean, this was 1970 we went out there. They were way back in the 1940s as far as theatre were concerned. And we were, you know, stretching the envelope in, Brit in, Europe, in British theatre. European theatre, we toured all over Europe. You know, we were doing stuff that was raising eyebrows in uh, in theatres around Europe and uh, Britain, whereas in um, in Israel, their eyebrows went straight up to the top of their head. Now, one thing I, th I read, this is where you, when you were with the um, road show, this is when you actually got your stage name. Yeah. And it was due to a reviewer yeah, mistakenly doing something? It was mistakenly crediting no, your stage. No, well, we lied. It was a lie, really. But then it isn't theatre. That's what theatre is. It's a glorious lie. Um, it's not real. What happened was that we were doing it, and uh, the character I was playing was called, I mean, the show was called An Evening with Sylvester McCoy, The Human Bomb. I was a human bomb, you see. So um, we were playing a very posh theatre in London, uh, in the studio upstairs, the Royal Court. And it was a very important gig because all the critics from London would come to see it. And Ken said to me, he said, yeah, it would be really good if the audience thought that you were real. So in the program, we invented the fact that Sylvester McCoy, played by Sylvester McCoy, left the Noon Grammar School at the age of 15, went to India and studied with gurus. And that's why he could do all these things. And we put that in the program. It's a joke, really. But one of the main head, the you know, principal critics, <laughs> 
he believed it and sort of <laughs> celebrated it. And then I remember thinking, actually, it's a rather good name. And my name is Kent Smith. Now, um, I had uh, ambitions above, above my station at the time because there was an American actor called Kent Smith who did B-movies. He played the Indian Chiefs and he did all sorts of things. He was, um, And so I thought, well, I, I shouldn't have that name. I must get my own. And so I took Sylvester McCoy. And I guess they say the rest you can say is history. Yeah. I mean, again, a film connection here. I was playing Stan Laurel. And at the time, I was called Sylvester McCoy because the Sylvester was from a song. That's my brother, Sylvester. It was, you know, it was a song we used. Well, that was where the name came from. And I was playing Stan Laurel. Now, Stan Laurel was known for, I'm um, sorry, 30s as Stan Jefferson. That was his real name. And his girlfriend at the time, they were touring, uh, you know, in, in, in you know, uh, Z, B move, not B movies, B theaters. They were, you know, one very successful. Um, and his girlfriend was into numerology. And she um, looked at his name and counted up and said, you know, Stan, your name has got 13 letters. That's bad luck. So they changed it. And I think they might have been in Laurel Canyon or wherever it was. Anyway, he took the name of Stan Laurel. And then the rest is history. After that, in the age of 34 or 35, he suddenly became the great, wonderful God that he is. And I looked at my name, and I realized that Sylvester McCoy was 13 letters. So I put in the R to make it Sylvester McCoy. And then after that, I got Doctor Who. So I guess you could I don't say, believe in all that stuff. I was going to say, I don't you, believe in it all that you could make an argument when you had a DR. Look, your luck changed. I don't know. It's you went from the human body to, to the TARDIS. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, just before we hit Doctor Who, you were in the movie Dracula from a nineteen from nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, and you got to work with um, a lot of people like Lawrence Olivier, um, yeah. Frank Lagella, and those kind of things. What well, where were some memories from the movie Dracula that you have? Well, um. Uh, yes, I I, I, uh, I went along for the audition. I remember, it, um, and I was very nervous, and it was in this long corridor, and they opened the door, and I, I came down the corridor, and I got faster and faster and faster, and I entered the room, and there was a, there was a couch, uh, a settee, and I fell over the settee and landed like this, and they were in front of me like that. And I went, hello, and they laughed. <laughs> and we it was quite a good audition, and they laughed a lot. But... Um, the, and I was up for Renfield, and I was right for Renfield. I was skinny and, you know, kind of, I was dead right physically for Renfield. But being Hollywood, oh, they always do. They always do this. Why did they do it? They decided they were going to go for an ego character. I mean, it was as if the audience wouldn't understand that someone who ate, you know. The, the glory of Renfield is he's, he's neurotic, he's little, he's hot, but he's doing this terrible thing. He's eating, you know, you know what I mean? Whereas an ego, you expect them to eat, eat things, you know takes away all the, that wonderful tension. Anyway, they went for uh, this other actor, who was a brilliant actor, by the way, lovely man. But they liked me so much because of that interview that they gave me a part. And the, um, the producers were uh, Mirish, the, the Mirish brothers. And I, so they called me Walter, after Walter Mirish, one of the, you know, the producers, famous producers at the time. So that my name is called Walter. And they took this, part that they had, which was a servant part, and they cut it in half. And they gave one half to an old guy and one half to me. So that's how I got the part. I ended up working with Lonzo Olivia, as you said, 
um, uh, Donald Pleasant. Oh, glorious. I mean, he was suitably named Pleasant. He was a lovely man. Um, and Frank Langella. It was funny. Frank Langella took me, we took me aside one day. Um, and he, he, he and Olivia didn't really get on. Uh, and uh, he said to me, Tony, I said, you know, we're the only two people with intelligence in this film, uh, which was very flattering as I looked up at him. Anyway, um, I, I looked up at Dracula. Uh, Olivier took, uh, he took against me. He didn't like me. Um, Donald Pleasance and I got on like a house on fire. In fact, he made Olivier apologize to me because Olivier behaved very badly. Um, he did something really very naughty which was we were supposed to end after Frank Langella had sucked Kate Nelligan who was playing Lucy neck so Lucy's in bed and the Dracula just jumped out the window and um, they call upon Van Helsing played by Lawrence Olivier with an appalling Dutch accent it just sounded it was German he couldn't even do it. he had a Dutch person there to teach him but he couldn't do it the great the greatest actor of the 20th century couldn't do Dutch it's a difficult one yes speak show you know you should want to approach languages we only just did German. Anyway, uh, we will. Well, so uh, Van Helsing comes down, and I'm with him uh, carrying garlic. And we come down to the door, and they both go into the door, and we set up the whole show. The light, the cameras are inside looking at us coming in the doorway. There we are. Okay, and it's only it's a, it's a connecting shot between Dracula leaving and us coming. So he needed to see us arrive. So then they go, okay, action. So we come down the corridor, we get to the door, and as we get to the door, Olivier goes boing like that and hits me, and I end up not being seen. And he walks in. He pushed me out of the scene. And I was, <laughs> and of course, it wasn't that important to see, they just needed, so they, and they were in a hurry, they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. That's right. I so I was furious. So in the next scene, if anyone watches it, I'm at the window with garlic putting garlic round the window. And I am furiously angry. I am going to go the garlic round this window. Looking back at Olivier. And I'm out of focus. And, I, and, I, and I, another actor who was a big fan of Olivier's, he went after and he saw me and he said, you know something? He said, you're the only person I've ever seen upstage, Olivier. And you're out of focus. <laughs> I was a big person. Now, the thing is that uh, another friend of mine said, well, the reason why I took against you was it was some old upstager worried about working with some young upstager. So uh, he, he wasn't a pleasant person. Whereas Donald Pleasance was, he was a man. And yet he played all those really nasty people. Frank Langella was fine. He was, he was, he was very elegant, Frank Langella. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I, I never, I mean, it's, it's nice. I always like it when you get these stories that nobody else can ever know. And now when I watch that movie again, I'm going to look for that. I'm going to watch that scene with the garlic with a different, <laughs> a different feel to it. Cause I'll know, I'll know, yes. I'll know a little bit about what was going on behind it. Now in 1987, you started playing doctor who, and the reason I say started, I think you're still playing the doctor and because well, you I'm think about audio productions and everything. Finish. I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> well, I mean, I am playing him in the sense of Big Finish, so, you know, um, audio to still do the doctor. And that's yeah. what I mean. So you've been playing the, the, doc, the role of the doctor for over 30 years. And yeah, and I think one of the things I loved about your, your run during the TV show part, the three seasons, 
I think your doctor had the most change in character, like in growth or whatever, where started off comedic and then he got to be more of um, a darker, um, you know, manipulative character as the, as the scripts changed, I guess, or whatever. But I was curious, how much control did you have over your portrayal of the doctor compared to what the producers wanted? Quite a lot, really, because you see, by then, the producer, John Nathan Turner, had done it for a long time. And in fact, he wanted to go off and do other work. So he just handed it to me and to um, the script editor, Andrew Cartmel, who's a strip, uh, Canadian, as you may well know. Uh, so Andrew, and of course, Andrew hadn't really knew much about Doctor Who, and I hadn't didn't know very much about Doctor Who. I hadn't seen it for years. I was always working when it was on. There was no way of recording it. It was always on once. And I was in, in the theatre working. So both of us uh, kind of just um, approached it completely fresh. And when I first got it, I I did the comic bit at the beginning because that's my <coughs> that's my bag. You know, I had a bag of comic tricks as well. And I thought, this is what they want. But then I started to realise I've just been handed one of the great TV roles. And you can do anything with this. And I, I realised that looking back, suddenly beginning to learn bits about it, that all the mysteries seem to have gone as far as I was concerned. Um, the, you know, the, the mystery of the first Doctor, he was amazing, mysterious. And so I wanted to bring that back. And Andrew and I, were, we were like, you know, twin brothers on that kind of thinking. He thought they were along the same lines. And then I wanted to bring back the danger and the uncertainty and the mystery of the man and the seriousness. My grandmother at the time, this is way back in the 80s, quite unusual. She lived to be 103 months. And she was compassmentous and really sharp. I went to meet her on her 100th birthday. And she, and I, my doctor was 950 years old. So age was a thing. And I remember thinking, she was kind of, in a way, she was weary with life because she'd seen so much. And, you know, she'd lost daughters and sons. Uh, you know, she'd seen tragedy. She'd, she, I think she was born in the Crimean War. You know, she'd been through that war, the First World War, the Second World War, the, Korean War, you know, all the wars, Vietnam War, you know, all that. There was all that kind of stuff. And I was saying, oh, God, I've got to grab that. I need that. that. Yeah, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. So that's what we did, really. And then, then years later, I was having dinner with um, uh, Stephen Moffat, <coughs> the producer uh, of the, uh, the uh, second producer of the 21st Century Doctors. And he, he turned out he was a big Doctor Who fan. And he said something to me. I hadn't really been aware of it. I hadn't noticed I'd done anything different. I only just noticed this is how I interpreted it. But he said, um, you know, that you changed it because up until then it was cartoon-like. But he said you brought something new to it. You brought a three-dimensional uh, a darkness, you know, thing, all the things that we brought to it. But we brought it out of ignorance. In a way, I think we were blessed, both Andrew Cartmel and I, because not having any real knowledge of Doctor Who, we didn't carry the baggage. We didn't know what the rules were. So we broke them. Now, a lot of people were upset that got used, you know, loved the other stuff, which was great stuff. But they, um, uh, but um, uh, now, I mean, people say that because of what we did, um, you know, you've got Christopher Eccleston, darker, and, you know, um, the various other Doctors became darker, you know, became, you know, they might be in comedic light, but, they always had to have a, you know, a deep, dark depth to them. So I'm very proud of that. 
I'm going to say that, that, like I said, it's one of the things I appreciated about your run, but I was always curious, like, and I'm glad you said that you had a, a big hand in helping to guide it that way. And um, for me, it worked really well, you know, with, with the, the switch. I liked it because when also I wasn't a child when I was watching and I was an adult and I think it, the, the doctor, the character portray, I mean, people have grown up with them for what, 60 years and, you know, and or him or her, and um, and I think every doctor has brought every person that's played the doctor has brought something different to the role, and I hate it when I see yeah. these lists about oh, this is the order of the doctors from you know number one to whatever, and you know, people like to put them in order like this is the best doctor, this is the worst doctor. Um, yeah, to me, it's 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 it, you can't really compare it because you're not playing the same scripts or they're not playing the same scripts or with the same things as other people are, it's two different eras or multiple eras now, you know, with the character. And I think it's an unfair thing to subjugate a actor to, um, like I'm, I'm looking at Colin Baker, who always seems to be rated as one of the, the lowest ones. And I've, I've always enjoyed his role. And I think I, I don't, I never blame an actor for what they're written, what they're given script wise. Yeah, no, I mean, if you listen to Colin's um, Big Finish, he's now one of the most favourite doctors in Big Finish. Because he's been, you know, given time to develop and he's a great actor and he does a great job. I mean, yes, I mean, when I was Doctor Who, I actually knocked Tom Baker off his uh, deserved fit place. He, he deserved to be top. But I actually managed to knock him off. And then, I mean, you go up and down, it depends. It, it depends if there's an Arnhem you know, and it's like who's and who's voting? Some, uh, you know, like the the Radio Times did one recently, and of course, a lot of Radio Times readers are not Doctor Who fans as such. You know, they just watch Doctor Who. It's just superficial. But I agree with you. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm, you know, I enjoyed it. I still enjoy it, and you know, I'm blessed. I was given a great job. Also, I did my best. You're also blessed with two of the better companions, you know, the actresses, Bonnie, Bonnie Lang, Langford and Sophie Aldred, you know, I'm playing uh, yeah. Melanie and Ace. I mean, you, you had, I mean, especially Ace. I know my daughter, um, when she was growing up watching Ace, that was like one of her role models of, um, yeah. of people in it. So I know for her, she really loved Sophie's interpretation of Ace. Yeah, no, that was great. I was blessed. And we, we hit it off. We got on from the very beginning. We became great friends, and we still are after all these years. Um, it was great working. And with, with Bonnie, was lovely too. Um, but she, I mean, she, uh, I think she was a bit frustrated because she was the last of the screamers, if you know what I mean. And she got, you know, she got the job. She was, uh, they were doing this uh, charity thing in a big place called Alton Towers, which is like Disneyland, or, you know. There's big up and down things. Um, so they were on that, and she was on there with the producer, up to her, and she screamed so much, he gave her the job. <laughs> but um, now she does, um, if you listen to her on audio, she does great work. I mean, really good work. Uh, she's given, uh, you know, much more depth, not just to scream. I mean, in a way, the early doctor, the early companion, she was there in the sense to explain to the audience what the doctor was thinking. You know, when he was doing stuff. Doctor, what does this mean? And he would tell you. 
but that was just the audience. No, so there was, you know, that, and um, but so when I got it, apart from, I mean, I was rather devious because uh, I knew all those speeches, gobbledygook speeches, science fiction speeches, which are a nightmare to read. <laughs> I came up with this idea that um, I was actually educating uh, Ace, um, uh, you know, in the uh, the university universe. Um, uh, and that, uh, so I would start off the speech and then I'd turn to her and say, and so what else do you think? And she'd finish it for me. Because <laughs> when she was much younger, she could learn my lines better than I could. That's And that's what I think I like about the Big Finish productions is that it gives everybody a chance to flesh out the different storylines and characters that they might not have had that opportunity to do. And for fans like myself of the franchise Doctor Who, it gives us a chance to have extra adventures, you know, and so on with these different characters that we all either grew up with or experienced as an adults. And um, I think that it's great that there's a, those have been so popular and been going on for so many years now. It is. It's wonderful. I mean, and also seeing like Paul, Paul McGann, he only got one chance of doing it for the film, you know, and, and so, but he's now got much more, you know, because of the audio and much appreciated. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, that uh, I've got one coming up. I'm going to be doing um, somehow in lockdown. I have to go to a studio all by myself and someone else will be down the line somewhere else. <laughs> interesting, really. Well, I think that's the one, one of the things that is kind of COVID proof is voice work. You know, because that's one of the things they can yeah. you can do and and have things still keep moving forward in in a relative yeah. safety. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But speaking of your audio work, um, I have a one of our listeners did have a question about it. Is there any particular like storyline or um, character that you haven't worked with or, or gone through that you would like to do in a future um big finished production? Yeah, I'm selfishly. I like to work with myself. What I mean is, I would like to play another character or an evil character, a doppelganger, only an evil one. I think that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Well, I think didn't um, Patrick Trouden did, did that long time ago, where he played he played the dual role of. The, the, the doctor and he played the, the evil character at that time. I'm trying to remember the storyline, but it, it, I knew he played both parts. And so, yeah, that would be great. Well, good. yeah, I'd like to do that. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would, I must suggest that to them. Well, that'd be interesting. And, and also then you, you'd have, you wouldn't have to worry about casting who the, who the person would be. The villain's like, Oh, it's me. You know, I'm both. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and the other thing I want to ask you about the Doctor is I, lo- I really enjoyed at the 50th anniversary the five-ish Doctor special that you guys did, you know, you with Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Paul um, McGann, and, of course, Tom Baker's voice was in there as a, as like a throwback to when they had the other reunion and it was only him doing like a little stuff from another, like um, some um, footage from another episode that they threw in. What was it like doing the five yeah. doctors? It was great fun. It was a, we had a great fun to the whole year because you know we were working and meeting at odd days and trying to 
stick it all together. It was Peter Davidson's, um, uh, he directed and produced it. He made a wonderful job of it, really. And his um, sense of humor, he's not a, a, you know, like an obvious kind of stand-up comic character in many ways, but he has a wonderful dry wit, uh, which was beautifully shown in that uh, little film we made. No, and Colin himself said it was one of the best things, his most enjoyable jobs he's ever done, really. We love doing it. It's great. Yeah. It was fun getting Peter Jackson involved and Ian McKellen. I don't think Ian McKellen volunteered. It's just Peter Jackson went in and, you know, kind of said, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this. Oh, <laughs> Well, it's, it's you know he was kind of trapped in um, the filming at the time for um, the Hobbit. And, Indeed, and so it's I guess I guess he had time on his hands. <laughs> well, I'm sure he wasn't. He had lots to do. But anyway, uh, yeah, it was good fun. But, I mean, I love. I think it was improvised. That thing of him going to Peter Jackson saying to him, "Oh, you know, Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester's gone. He's gone." And then Liam says, "Who? Who? You know, you know." The little one, the rabbit, or something. I don't and then he says, oh, yeah. and then he says to him something along the lines of, "Well, you better do his lines." He said, "Oh, you're all right." He said, "There will be an improvement." <laughs> I don't think that was written. I think he improvised that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we filmed that. That's in the film. We filmed that uh, King. Oh no, that was yeah. That was. I also did King Lear with him. Sorry, before that. That's how I got the film. Three um, films of The Hobbit because I was in King Lear with him. I played the fool to his king. It's kind of a double act, and um, that's on film somewhere. Yeah, no, I had actually had it written down that you worked with um, Sir McKellen, you know, in, in Lear, and, and I was curious how that, you know, because again, with my love of theater, you know, I was curious how it was playing the fool. Well, this was a, I mean, this school is a tragic school, really. I mean, lots of other Shakespeare schools are kind of, they were comedic in many ways. Um, although, and I'd played most of them. I mean, one I played twice was Festy. Although I didn't play him quite much for laugh because I was working at the time of B-series and there were a lot of um, comedians, old-fashioned ones, you know, kind of uh, variety uh, ones. And I, I noticed that they were not happy people. They were angry. And they were alcoholics, a lot of them. So when I played Bestie in Twelfth Night, I brought that to it. And this was years and years ago. And I don't think anyone had ever done something quite like that before. Um, because it was usually, you know, that kind of fool. Um, because in the play, he disappears every now and again for a couple of weeks. And I think he's often a bender. And then he comes back and he's angry. And... I mean, he's really nasty to Malvolio. So there's all that. So I, um, I, but the rest of the fools I played were clown-like, except for this one. This one is normally played by a straight actor um, because, I don't know why, uh, but Trevor Nunn cast me. And, of course, I have a whole baggage of clown comedy with me. But at the same time, it's, the tragedy of the clown. And so the great joy was trying to create both. <clears throat> and so I managed to get laughs into the, the, this part that no one had done before. 
But it seemed important to me that he would get that because he's a clown. He has to be funny. You've got to see him to be funny. And then when the tragedy arrives, the contrast is so much more poignant. And I remember we did them, uh, we were first opening, Trevor Nunn came to me and said he'd never seen uh, uh, the fool in King Lear get so many laughs before. So I was very proud of that achievement. And I agree with your interpretation. I think when you have that, the, the laughs and then the, and then the, the tragic fall, you know, those things hit, yeah. it causes more of the emotion with the audience. And I, I think, yeah. I think that definitely works the best because it's just, it's just more jarring to them and it hits, it hits them more into their gut. Yeah. I wish I could have seen it, but. Well, it's got, you can, it's, um, it's, it's on video. Oh, it is. DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's out there somewhere. I'll have to I'm look sure. it up because I, I mean, you 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 know, you get it in theatrical shops or, or that do art, you know, they do videos of plays and stuff like that. We filmed it um, afterwards. We did it went to the studio and filmed it. So it's kind of semi film, semi um, theatre performance type. It's um, yeah. Well, now I got something to look forward to because I'm so used to not. I'm so used to theatre not being out there on. Um, film, you know, or, or DVD yeah. that I, I, I don't usually look at, look for it. You know, it's nice to know that it's out there. And also for listeners, they'll know, Hey, if you want to see the performance, it's yeah. there, you know? Yeah. Ian McKellen's King Leon. Which you said led to the Hobbit and you were there. How long were you in New Zealand filming the Hobbit? Well, well the whole job was for three years, but I was back and forward, back and forward, back and forward really. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I a couple of weeks here, six weeks here, two weeks here, a week here. It was actually once I went for one day. <laughs> I went all the way out to New Zealand, filmed for a day, and came all the way back. That was insane. Time travel. I was gonna say yeah, because I know, I know um, where I live here in the United States, um, it's a sixteen-hour difference, you know, between New Zealand and here, or fifteen hours right now. <laughs> oh, sorry, you're, you're in this. Forgive me. I thought you were in Canada. I, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were in Canada. You know why? Yeah, the continent, right? I wasn't too worried. You know, it's. No, no, no. It's just because I made comments about Canada. Too. Oh, I know, and it, it's it's okay. You know, I, I live in I live in the um, uh, the little state of Maryland, and um. All right. Yeah. Yep. Right next to D.C. Right at the epicenter of all the fun. So it's uh. <laughs> My goodness, yes. But Radagast the Brown, I mean, um, for The Hobbit, I mean, obviously this is a character that was totally um, expanded upon for the movie and things like that. And how much, um, again, creativity were you given to, in your portrayal of the character? How much did Peter Jackson let you do? Quite a lot, really. I mean, you get me to improvise things and then pick out the bits you like. So it was like, you know, I just gave him the stuff and he used what he liked, really. Yeah. Sounds like Peter Jackson is a good director for a person of your improv abilities to work with, you know, um, because he allows you to be able to do it and, and then he takes the parts that he wants with editing and everything else and puts in there. Yeah. I know he was. I'm, what was wonderful, really, was we worked together, you know, over those three years. And at the end of it, 
Uh, and he did this with all the other actors. It was really sweet. He'd make a little speech. You know, if you did your last scene, he'd have a little speech and he'd give you a card and, and um, he gave me a couple of presents. He gave me this staff that um, I handed over to uh, Gandalf. Uh, he gave me my um, my seat, you know, the actor's seat with my Radagast's name on it. And he gave me some from Bilbo Baggins' cellar. And um, he said nice things. And then he suddenly said, and of course, um, what has also been wonderful, he said, he says, I got to work with, and then he went, Doctor Who! <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing. And for three years, he kept it a secret. <clears throat> and it shows you what a wise man he was. Because if he had done that at the beginning, then I would have been a bit of a, you know, kind of the uh, the uh, status between us would have been very different. He would say, oh, Sylvester, could you go over there? And I said, well, I don't think I should. I mean, I think I should be over there. Whereas he didn't try to direct us and go over there. Yeah, I'll go over there. But then now I knew he was a Doctor Who fan. I could have said, no, no, I think maybe I'll do that. Anyway, he was very wise. He didn't, um, he didn't let on for three years. <laughs> he was, that's how I got the part as well. It was the um, King Lear and Doctor Who. Sometimes it's being at the right place at the right time, and, and then things just happen to hit that, that but, moment. Yeah, and our, and our job is very much that. It's not, not so much talent, it's just luck who you know, being the right place at the right time. And hopefully you've got a bit of talent when you get there. <laughs> well, you, you definitely have talent. And um, I was wondering, when you were in New Zealand, you know, did you get to talk with Christopher Lee? No, sadly. That was the very, very sad thing because he, you know, he was in his 90s by then. Yeah. And so the film, the bits in the film that we did, he did in London. So I mean, you know, I, you know, I know he was, his, he was very, Saruman the White was very disparaging about, kind of, you know, um, Radagast the Brand, and he's dope smoking. Um, yeah, that would have been nice to have met him. I never met him. That's a shame. I was, I was just curious because, like, of all, you know, of all the people that you're working with, it was just like, oh, I hope he had some time to talk to Christopher Lee because I know everybody, you know, it, it's. He's had he's had also a very interesting life. Um, Indeed, yeah, amazing career. Yeah. No, sadly, he was he wasn't well enough to make that journey from England to New Zealand. A killer. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, because it's it, I've I've never had to fly that far that long. You know, so I can only imagine what it what it would have been like. You know, as a, as a travel, especially at his age. Yeah, that was the thing, really. Because, I mean, when he did the Lord of the Rings, he was younger, you know, and, you know, uh, it was easier for him. Although we were technically in the same film. <laughs> Speaking of New Zealand, one of our listeners, um, his name is Alistair, wanted me to ask you a question about, you were, you're involved in a TV show, Sense8. You had, um, yeah. what was it like? Um, working on that show and um, do you have any memories with it? That was great. It was brilliant. It was amazing because uh, it was with Bukowski's, you know, did The Matrix. Uh, it was their show, really. And um, when I, I went along and I met this tall, elegant lady um, 
uh, and I, I, I had no idea really who she was, um, and I didn't really kick the name in. I'm, not, I'm terrible at names, and therefore I never listened to them properly. Um, and so I met her, and we got on really well for 45 minutes. I didn't have to do any screen tests. I didn't have to read anything. I got the part. And so I went back, and I phoned my son, and I said, oh, I, I think I've got this part. I went to see um, uh, th- th- this wonderful lady, and uh, we got on really well. And I told him the name, the Wachowskis. And he went, oh, my God. He said, do you know who that was? I had no idea, which was a blessing, really. Because mm-hmm. I might have known who it was. I might have been nervous, but I wasn't nervous. So, I mean, that was one of the um, other, thing, other things of um, getting parts in films. Go along, you don't know who it is. Uh, don't get distinguished, frightened by it. It was lovely to do, really. I enjoyed it immensely. What was what, what was very sad was I, I came in on the second season and the principal writer took me aside when we were filming and said, we've got plans for you in the third season. Big plans. And um, I said, oh, great. And then Netflix decided not to do the third season. And then the fans around the world were so upset. They demanded something. And so Netflix said, okay, you can do a two and a half hour film, finish up the roundup story give it an ending so I got into that but um it was a shame because I I I'm I I love travel and that I mean they they, they they didn't have any CGI it was all they went there if it was up uh, if it was in Brazil they went to Brazil they went to India South Korea whatever and I would have gone there that was lovely I love doing that the old man of Hoi great character name too that sounds great. I mean, I, I I didn't know you were in Sense8 until we um, sent a request, and I, and I saw it's on Netflix, so I'm going to be watching it um, during the next couple of months. You know, I'm going to binge it, you know, and get through it and stuff like that. So I have yet to see it, um, but at least I know. I mean, the second second series, I, I do a little bit in one episode. I arrive in one episode, and then I do quite a lot in the second. The next one. My arrival is brilliant. I loved it. I've I, what an entrance. I mean, I didn't know I was doing that. Somebody I mean, just filmed it. And then suddenly when you see it, wow, what an entrance. Great fun. Well, I'm looking forward to it now. And because, um, like I said, I like watching your work. And speaking of your work, you have two movies that came out this year or, co- or coming out this year. Um, the Owners, yeah. which came out, um, what, a month or two ago? Um, we're, we're, we're recording this in um, November 11th for those one. And I think it came out in September or October. I, 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 purchased- I think so in America. Yeah. It came, it came out a bit later in Britain. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what they're doing with it. Cause I've been, I, I, you know, I've been in France. I'm in out of touch, but um, yeah, I, I, there was, they did it in the um, um, total film festival, the uh, fright fest festival in London a couple of weeks ago. They had a big festival of horror films, and um, I got voted best actor. Oh, they definitely deserved it. I mean, uh, if, for those that want to watch it, you can stream it, and um, I got—I was able to, uh, to stream it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's available on other platforms also. And you played a role of Doctor yeah. Huggins, who has the movies. Basically, you another have another doctor. Another doctor. I know you—you you seem to can't get away with the name Doctor in your roles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this doctor is a lot different than the other doctor. And, um, yeah, he has, um, 
a pestilence problem with um with um human pests um in his house and he has to um take measures to take care of it. Yes, yes sir. Say no more. Yeah, I don't want. I, I, the only thing I, the only thing I'll mention is anything that's in the trailer because I don't want to spoil it for people. But Maisie Williams plays the um, the the lead actress role, and and play yeah. plays Ma- uh, Mary. And um, I've never watching her in Game of Thrones and seen other and seen her also in Doctor Who. Um, she is just she's just wonderful. What was it like working with um, with Maisie Williams? That was great. She was lovely. She's got such enthusiasm, young, and also she's incredibly wise. And um, I think one day she'll be a producer, a director, film director. She's, uh, you know, she kind of grew up in film, and she knows every bit of it. Um, and she's very intelligent. So you know, she's, um, um, she, you know, she, she she was just so good to work with. She knew exactly where where to look, what to do. And also, there was someone else that mentioned Rita Tushingham. Rita Tushingham was one of the great swinging 60s <coughs> uh, film stars of the 60s. Um, kind of Loving, which was a transforming film. Um, she was also in Dr. Zhivago, which I've read recently. It was one of the, some critics have said it was one of the best uh, British films ever made. Um, uh, the, the, uh, yes, it was an article. It was only yesterday. Stanley Kubrick wants to make Dr. Zhivago. But he didn't get it to do it. It was um, David Lean, I think, said his name. And so Rita was in that. So she played my wife. She's a, love, she's a lovely actress. It was great doing that. It was great. Oh, uh, yes, and the other one is called uh, Lost in. No, was it Lost at Christmas? Or yeah, Lost at Christmas. It changed the name. Yeah, Lost yeah, at Christmas. The name. Which is coming out in December. So when this episode will be coming, when this episode comes out in December, it should be available and streaming whether it'll be available streaming worldwide or not i don't know but it'll be out then and for people yeah. looking for doctor who references you got to work with fraser hines yeah fraser and i played two old cronies in a bar uh in a, in, a, in an inn in glencoe in the north of scotland glencoe has got a terrible history the mcdonald's of glencoe um were massacred by the Campbells of Argyle, who came in and stayed three days uh, in this very Drichtrab Glen, Glencoe, and the, uh, the, the Campbells killed them all. After having been given wine and women and song and whiskey and food and welcome. And so it's a dark day in Scottish history. And so we were in the inn in this place, and on the door, the front door, it said, Campbell's not welcome. <laughs> I, I will say, these two movies are totally detriment, um, diametrically apart from each other. In one, one is a horror film, and this one is a romantic comedy Christmas movie. Yeah. You know, from yeah. what I gathered from the trailer, and um, the trailer is available on YouTube, and um, it's it, it definitely, my wife loves the Hallmark Christmas movies and I showed it to her and she's like, Oh, we got to watch this one. So I know it, it will be seen at some time, you know, in December when it comes out because okay. it, it's, yeah. it, it fills that niche. And, and also it, I think it's different than, I mean, it has some of the same tropes of a romantic comedy Christmas movie, but 
what I liked about the trailer, it seems to have that um, comedy style that's going to be going on and a little bit of um, characters going back and forth. But what I love about it personally is seeing you and Frazier, Mr. Hines, you know, going, you know, being together. And I can just imagine that the two of you having so much fun during the scenes, between the yeah, scenes. <laughs> yeah. No, we had a laugh. Yeah, there was a lot. We did a lot more than is in the film because, you know, the usual way, the things get lost. Um, they focused on the lovers more, rightly so. But we had, we had such fun, really. Quite a lot of improvising again. Um, it was good. Some other wonderful Scottish actors. Now, one of the things I want to ask you, um, in your long career, who are some people you might that that you no longer can? So that way we don't take away people that you could still work with. But what would be like? A, what director would you have loved to have worked with that's no longer working, or sadly might have passed away? Oh, um, um, oh, what's his name? Who did something like it hot and? Um, Great. Oh, my, my brain. I'm quite tired now, and, and my brain's gone to sleep. Um, oh, yeah. Let me think. Direct. Oh, well, I, no, actually, I'd like to have worked with Sajat Rai. So Sajat Rai is an Indian director. And um, when, when I, in the 60s, I saw his first film, which is part of a trilogy called The World of Apu. And um, it was just quite brilliant. And what I loved about it was it was an introduction uh, to India and, and not just, you know, um, tourist India, but to real India, the villages of India, some beautiful story, some amazing scenes. Yeah. And for some like it, how the director is Billy Wadler. That was who I was thinking about. Yeah. I loved him. I mean, he was amazing. Billy Wilder is absolutely amazing. He did comedy with Upper Brilliance. He did tragedy. I mean, he could do the whole thing. And he was a, he was a German director. I, you know, um, working. He was a genius. In fact, I met him once because I was at the Roundhouse and the box office before I became an actor. And it was the 75th anniversary of film. And the Sunday Times, in conjunction with the Roundhouse Theatre, put on a festival. And my job was to welcome whoever came in. And King Vidor came in, and Billy Wilder, and um, uh, Marlon Brando, uh, Nureyev, um, uh, who was the actress in um, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, she came in. Various different, many famous people. Um, and um, and then uh, Wilder came in. Burton and Taylor. And Gene Kelly. <laughs> yeah, Gene Kelly came in. I remember getting him coming in. Because we were up these stairs, and someone the stairs were outside, and someone came in and said, Gene Kelly's coming up the stairs, and I ran out to meet him. And this, he, by then he was a much older man, but he, he was shaped like a, um, like a box, square box, you know, but this head on top of it. It's amazing. And, it, and that absolutely brilliant smile. It just sunshine came out. And I'd met him. And then years later, while I was touring in King Lear, we went to Hollywood. Uh, we were playing there. And and Gene Kelly's wife came to see it, uh, his widow really, and she invited us all to a party in our house. So I got to go to Gene Kelly's house and go around all his stuff. She collected all his paraphernalia that all film buffs would love to put their hands on. 
And uh, one last question, because it is December and it's Christmas time. You were in an audio production of A Christmas Carol. Ah, yes. And one of the things I want to ask you is, what was your favorite film version of A Christmas Carol, if you have one? Like, I do, I do. Um, and one of my favorite actors um, played him. Um, oh, God, give me some names. I'm terrible. I'm oh. something. Well, there were, I've been doing interviews all day, and I'm kind of tired now. Well, they see, there's, there's, there's Alistair. Play. Alistair Sim. Alistair Sim. Oh, gosh. Alistair Sim. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I saw that when I was a child. When I was a tiny, tiny little child, I came from the Houses of Scotland, real theatre. I was taken to Glasgow, and it was Peter Pan was on. Peter Pan was on the stage, Christmas show, and Alistair Sim played Carrot Cats and Hoof. And I was too tiny. I was so little. I could. I, I stood up, and the seat in front of me was here. And I can still remember the set of that play. I was so small, little boy, little boy. I remember it. I remember the, the flock wallpaper of the theatre and the little lights, you know, the beautiful inside of the theatre. And I, my first, I saw Alistair Sim live. Oh, he was glorious. I loved him. Oh, I would have, I would have loved to have seen him live, and, and thankfully, some of his film work is still out there for everybody to see and enjoy, and and, and to oh, see the work he yeah, can do. Forever. Oh, he's just, just one of the best. Um, thank you, sir, for um, Mr. Quick for allowing me to interview you and and and, to, and reminisce about your stuff that you've done in the past and to talk about some of your movies that you've enjoyed because I think yeah. That's one of the things where people listen to this podcast, listen to like love movies. I think one of the things we like to talk about is your is other people's love of movies, and hopefully people will seek these ones out and see them yeah. maybe for the first time, or maybe they're watching it again and, and see it with a different appreciation. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Alice Sim, Buster Keaton, Alec Guinness, Stan Laurel, Stan. Oh, beautiful, wonderful Stan. I got. I was playing Stan Laurel in a play, and I came off the first night, and they introduced me to this woman. They said to me, "Oh, get who, 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 guess who this is?" And I thought, "Oh God!" And I'm so bad at remembering. And I thought, "Is it my wife?" And I mean, you know, I'm just off the stage. And then they said, "It's Stan Laurel's daughter." So she came to see me play Stan Laurel, and she invited me to her wedding. She was getting married to an Englishman. Isn't that wonderful? That is what that is amazing. I mean, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, she must have really enjoyed your performance of what you did, you know, or you know. Well, absolutely. She invited me to her wedding. I mean, I didn't even know. Um, I don't. She didn't quite think I was her dad because otherwise, I had to give her away. <laughs> that would have been fun, wouldn't it? That would have been fun. That, that would have been interesting. Anyway, but thank you okay. again. Pleasure. Cheers. Hope you've got what you want. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.